Hey, welcome to our worship service. I'm glad you found us. This is our fourth week meeting all over Northern Virginia as a church distributed. We're blessed to be able to meet this way. Before I start, please turn in your Bibles uh, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. And listen carefully as I read our scripture passage for today. Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And when they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and as always we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand. Life is anxious and uncertain right now, and it looks like it's going to get harder before it gets better. We live in a time of fear and confusion, not knowing what the next day will bring. We need Jesus, so help us to see Jesus today. Help us to see Jesus in your word. Help us to see the glory of Christ in the triumphal entry. Thank you that once again we're learning from Mark, a follower of Jesus as he brings us the good news of the life of Christ. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through the gospel of Mark this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray. Amen. Well, in the weekly email that Andrea sends out every Thursday, I lamented that Palm Sunday wouldn't be the same this year. And that's because every year on Palm Sunday, children enter our worship service with palm branches, delightfully waving to the congregation in celebration of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Many know the story of the Lord Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey to the adulation of the crowds. But not everyone knows that long before Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, hundreds of years before he was even born, another man rode a donkey into Jerusalem. And in that first triumphal entry, we uncover precious truths about the second. Our story begins in the book of 1 Kings. Here King David the one who defeated a giant as a boy who conquered armies as a teen, is now an old man. And it's clear to everyone that David's life is almost over. 
Soon there will be a new king. One of David's sons, Adonijah, decides he wants to be king. And so he starts by forging two strategic partnerships, one with the military leader, Joab, and one with the priestly leader, Abiathar. He gathers them for a private coronation party. Now, readers of the scripture know that David had already appointed Solomon to be the next king. So Adonijah's power play then is essentially a hostile takeover and a murderous threat to his rivals, his brother Solomon and his mother Bathsheba. But even more, it's a threat to God's promises. You see, in 1 Samuel 7, the Lord had promised that David would have an enduring royal dynasty, and that would come specifically through Solomon. First Chronicles 22 tells us, Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So that means this little crisis is a life and death struggle for the kingdom of God. Bathsheba then enters our story to alert King David to what's happening. Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan remind David of the oath that he had made in response to God's covenantal promise. Little known fact, Bathsheba's name actually means daughter of the oath. And so King David affirms his plans to crown Solomon and he goes ahead and takes action. He summons Nathan, a godly prophet, Zadok, a godly priest, and Benaniah, a godly advisor to the king. Prophet, priest, and king. That may sound familiar. Those are the three offices of the Messiah. And here we have a prophet, a priest, and an advisor to the king. Not exactly the same, but you can see the significance. David gives his royal mule to Solomon and parades him into Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. Solomon was anointed and enthroned with a triumphant public celebration. This is no secret ceremony like Adonijah's private party, but God's people publicly celebrating God's king with loud praises. And the private party for Adonijah dissolves as the cheers for Solomon drown out his imposter coronation. And all of that happens in 1 Kings chapter 1. Now Solomon's entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey across the Kidron Valley declares the true king. It announces that the priestly leader Abiathar and all the religious leaders following him are phonies. It also announces that the military leader Joab and all his military powers aren't really in charge. This one, this king on a donkey, is the true son of David. So on Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus retracing Solomon's path across the Kidron Valley and entering Jerusalem on a donkey. It's certainly a picture of humility, entering on a donkey instead of a war horse. And it certainly suggests a contrast between God's kingdom and the sort of entrance that a 
King Herod or Pontius Pilate would have received as they entered the city that week. But as a reflection of Solomon's coronation, Jesus' triumphal entry teaches us even more. It testifies that the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders who opposed him, are phonies. And it also says Rome, with all its military might, isn't really in charge. Even the children, which is why children lead the parade on Palm Sunday, they could see that Jesus, this king on a donkey, is the true son of David. We see that in Matthew 21, parallel passage, says, When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So here at last is the true king. So today, this Palm Sunday, we celebrate the triumphal entry of the second king, who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He enters to the praise of children, unmasking all pretenders to his throne, and reminding us that he and he alone is the only king worth following. He is a greater king than Solomon. <coughs> By the way, uh, just as an aside, a wonderful exercise this afternoon would be for you to go and read the parallel passages in Matthew 21, in Luke 19, and in John 12, because each of them brings out some unique things. For instance, John is the one who tells us that there were palms. Matthew and Mark tell us that they took branches, but it doesn't tell us what kind of branches. John says it was palms. And so you pick up different things from the different passages. But one of the things you'll pick up is that even in this passage, it tells you the disciples don't quite know what's going on. And so Jesus is trying to help everyone understand very clearly who he is and what he's come to do. And that's what Palm Sunday is about. But before we get too far into today's text, let's step back and see what's going on. And we need to do this because we're taking the text out of order, jumping around, so we get the right text for Palm Sunday and Easter. So today we're in Mark 11, which begins with this well-known story of the triumphal entry. Interestingly enough, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday begins the last week of Jesus' life. Now think about this for a moment. In the Gospel of Mark, the triumphal entry comes in chapter 11 out of 16 chapters, so there's five chapters to go. In the Gospel of Luke, it's in chapter 19 of 24 chapters, again, five chapters to go. In the Gospel of Matthew, it's in chapter 21 of 28 chapters, leaving seven chapters to go. And in the Gospel of John, it's in chapter 12 of 21 chapters, leaving nine chapters to go. In other words, so much of what the Bible tells us about Jesus' life happens in that last week. Now, since we're reading about the life of Jesus here in the Gospel of Mark, we have to realize it's an awful lot for us to cover. So what we have here at the beginning of Jesus last week is the story of his triumphal entry. So let's do what we usually do and make some observations. If you're going to study a passage of the Bible, you have to do a lot of noticing. You can't just say, what does it mean? 
you have to start noticing things, making observations, and there's always more there than you notice the first time around. So let's do a little noticing and ask ourselves what it means. As I said, this is a well-known story, so what I'm asking you to do is to notice new things about an old story. Let me point out a few things important to notice. First of all, let's look at the context. There's a crisis that forms the context for this entire incident. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And then at the end, we know something special is happening because we see in verses 9 and 10, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a uh, quote from a Messianic Psalm, Psalm 118. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. But before this happens, Mark gives us an account of Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus. And in Mark 10, 47, we hear what Bartimaeus said. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus heals him. Now you could say, okay, great, one more miracle on the way. But you have to realize what this means for Mark 11 and the triumphal entry. This is the first time Jesus has been given the messianic title and allowed it to be said in public. When Bartimaeus called out, son of David, Everybody knew who that was. The son of David was the messianic king predicted for centuries. The son of David was the ultimate king, the final king of the world. For the first time, somebody cries out in public and calls him, oh, messianic king, ultimate king, final king of the world. And Jesus looks at them and says, yes. It took a blind man to really see Jesus. And in response, everybody gasped. In particular, the apostles would have gasped because from the very beginning, they wanted Jesus to openly declare himself a king. They knew about his power. They saw what he could do. They knew about the miracles. They wanted him to come out and publicly proclaim it because that would force the issue. And now he does it. And they gasp because they know what this means. This is a crisis. When Jesus publicly proclaims himself to be the Messiah, the ultimate king, that means he either has to triumph and take the kingship, or he'll be crushed by the authorities who will feel that they have no choice but to crush him. So when the disciples hear Bartimaeus say, Son of David, and Jesus say, Yes, that's me, they're shocked. The hair on the back of their necks must have gone up. They must have been simultaneously thrilled and terrified because they know this is a do-or-die time. They knew he either had to triumph or be destroyed. This is it. Everything is happening now. Time is running out. They're on their way to Jerusalem, and he's openly declared himself to be the king. And that's the first thing we have to see, this great drama, this tremendous tension that happens right before this passage. And so we see now, starting at verse 1, he comes as king. He comes as king. Mark, in this passage, clearly directs our attention to the questions in the text. Verse 3, why are you doing this? Verse 5, what are you doing? 
And the great point of the passage is we need to see who Jesus is. And he's going to make some very deliberate claims to make clear who he is. Because the question of who Jesus is is an eternal question with life or death consequences. It's the difference between heaven and hell. And he's focusing our attention on this question of who is he. He's asking you to sit there today and think, who do I really believe that Jesus is? Am I prepared to stake my life on who he claimed to be? In this passage, the first thing you see is Jesus claimed to be king. You see it in verse 2. He tells the disciples, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And Jesus, now he's walked all the way from Galilee down to Bethany. He's walked all the way from Bethany to Jerusalem. And suddenly he's going to get on an animal. Now he doesn't do this because he's tired. He would have already gotten tired walking from Galilee to Bethany. He's doing this for very specific reasons. He's deliberately choosing to ride into Jerusalem. And so the first reason we've already seen, because like King Solomon, he's coming as a king. But here's one thing we often get wrong about this passage. We think, okay, donkey. That means humble. And there is a certain truth to that. It's emphasized in the parallel passage in Matthew 21. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. But you need to understand that Jesus is making a claim to kingship by riding this donkey. And it's clear that the crowd gets it. So they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. It's clear the crowds get the kingly symbolism here. Jesus is claiming to be king. But notice what he's saying when he does this. He's letting them know, I'm not the kind of king you expect. I'm not a military power messiah who's going to come and kick out your Roman oppressors and reestablish the Mosaic law. I'm not that kind of messiah. I'm not the messiah you're expecting. I'm the messiah you need. I'm not the king you are expecting. I'm the king you need. Because you need far more than you need deliverance from the Romans. You need deliverance from yourselves. You need deliverance from your sins. And the only kind of king that can give that to you is the kind of king that I am. A military king can't give that to you. But a king who's humble enough to die for your, your sin can give you the deliverance you need. So that's the first thing. He comes as king. Second, he comes according to scripture. He comes according to scripture. Jesus has clearly planned all of this. And you see it in how it plays out. He tells the disciples to go to Bethpage. They'll find a colt tied and, and to bring it. That's the second thing we see. He's doing this, coming as king, according to scripture. And he's doing it very explicitly. Now, the passage actually is a little strange when you first read it. It says, verse 3, If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And, of course, they let him go. It almost has a miraculous feel to it. It sort of reminds me of, these are not the droids you're looking for. But that's not how we're supposed to read it. I think Jesus has planned this himself without the disciples' knowledge. 
just like he's going to make arrangements for the upper room four nights later. It's here to let you know this is happening exactly the way Jesus wants it to happen. One of the things you start learning on Palm Sunday is that none of what's going to happen during Easter week is out of Jesus' control. He's planning it all. In fact, if you turn back a chapter to Mark 10, he says to his disciples in Mark 10, 33 and 34, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And then look what happens. Jumping ahead to Mark 14. It's now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now the chief priests who were gathered together plotting to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him, they're saying, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar. And get that? Jesus said, I'm going to be arrested next week during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'm going to be tried in a kangaroo court. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. But then we see the people who are planning to do it, and they say, oh, we're not going to do it during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Jesus is essentially saying, oh, yes, you are, because I've planned it that way. Jesus is not the victim of the Romans. He's not the victim of the high priests. He's not the victim of the Sanhedrin. He's not the victim of the Pharisees. He's in complete control. And notice what he's doing with all of this. He's fulfilling Scripture. So the reason he tells him, go get that colt tied up in the village. You know, I've already talked to their owners. If any of the servants say, what are you doing with that colt? Just tell them the Lord has need of it. That's what we've agreed on. They're going to let you take the colt. So Jesus rides this colt, and it tells us it's a young previously unridden animal. Why? Why is that important? Because Zechariah 9, verse 9, our responsive reading for this morning, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus called for this particular cult to make it crystal clear he's fulfilling this passage of Scripture. See, Jesus is saying, I'm going to live by the book, I'm going to minister by the book, I'm going to suffer by the book, I'm going to die by the book, I'm going to be resurrected by the book. Jesus is conducting his life and ministry strictly in accordance with the Word of God. Can I just pause for a moment there and say, that is so important for us to understand. Because in our day and time, there's all sorts of per persuasive, influential people and persuasive voices that claim to be Christian that are saying, listen to my words, you hear my appeal, follow my thinking, obey my authority over and against the Word of God. So they'll say things like, you know, we need to be led into a fresh new understanding by the Holy Spirit and away from this wooden commitment to the Word of God. And here's Jesus, and he does this over and over again in the Gospels, living his life by the book. Down to minute detail, he says, I'm living in accordance with God's word. 
And if the Holy Spirit is the author of the word, and he is, and he'll never speak against the word, and Jesus never speaks against the word, and his ministry is done by the book. I mean, he's being very deliberate here, very intentional. He's making a claim to be king, but he's rooting that claim in the Bible. I am king, and I'm fulfilling what the Bible said the king would do. And that starts on Palm Sunday. Jesus is making a claim to be king, but he's basing that claim on the Bible. The Spirit doesn't point you to Jesus and away from the Bible. He always points you to Jesus with the Bible. Jesus is basing his claim, rooting his claim, grounding his claim in the scriptures. He comes as king. He comes according to the scripture. And finally, his coming demands a response. His coming demands a response. Remember, just a few nights later, the Apostle John is going to tell us that one of the disciples will say to Jesus, Jesus, we love all the stuff you're telling us about how you're going to build mansions and glory for us. We're all going to live in some fancy Mediterranean villa. But we don't know how to get there. We don't know how to follow you there. And you remember how Jesus answers them? If not, I'll tell you. John 14, 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now do you see why the who is this question is so important? Jesus is saying, nobody gets to glory except through me. Nobody gets to glory except by believing me. You embrace me, salvation and glory. You reject me, damnation and disgrace. Friends, that's a question for every single one of us today. You know, if you're a member of this church, at some point in time, you said these words. This is the third membership question. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and I receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. And so Jesus on Palm Sunday is saying this, if you don't know who I am, if you don't believe my claims, if you don't trust in me, then you have no hope. He's not the kind of king they expected, and he's not the kind of king they wanted. They wanted somebody who would come and clean the Romans out and set up the Mosaic Law again. But Jesus comes to people who don't know who he is, who don't know why he's coming, who don't know what it means, in order to give them exactly what they need. And you know what? Sometimes it's like that in the Christian life. You have no idea what Jesus is doing. You have no idea what it means in your life. But he's coming because he's the savior you need. He's the king you need. And so all of us have to answer that question. Who is this? The king of glory? The Lord, who is this? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the king? The only name under heaven by which we can be saved? That's the only response that leads to glory because Jesus is leading us to glory. And he does it in a way that's unmistakable because with the triumphal entry, we have the return of God's glory. You see, Jesus' triumphal entry began at Bethany, a little village at the top of the Mount of Olives. It looks out across the Kidron Valley down to the city of Jerusalem, 300 feet below. And there's special significance to that. You see, in 586 B.C., at the time of Jerusalem's destruction and the exile of its people to Babylon, God gave a vision to the prophet Ezekiel. 
And in that vision, Ezekiel saw the glory of God rise up from the temple in Jerusalem. And the glory departed from the east side of the city and ascended 300 feet to rest on the Mount of Olives. You can find that in Ezekiel chapter 11. Now years ago I was in Jerusalem and the group I was with took us to the Mount of Olives. Once during the day and once at night. And at night you can look down across the Kidron Valley and see the illuminated walls of Jerusalem. It is a stunning sight. You can go to our website and look at the bulletin for today or in the sermon manuscript or even in the sermon outline. And you're going to see two photos. Both of those are taken of the Temple Mount uh, in Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. One during the day and one at night. And even though these are modern pictures, they'll give you a good idea of what Jesus saw when he looked at Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. After Mark describes the triumphal entry. He tells us, he ends this section, verse 11, by saying, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, Mark's conclusion appears anticlimactic at first. It looks like uh, Jesus got into Jerusalem. He arrived a little late. He went to the temple, looked around, and went back to Bethany as if nothing significant had taken place. However, we need to remember where Jesus was. Earlier, we're told he had set his face like a flint. That's a messianic phrase from Isaiah 50. He set his face to go to Jerusalem knowing that he would suffer and die there. But Jerusalem in and of itself is not his ultimate destination. That's the temple. When he went into the temple, he looked around at the place where historically the sacrifices were offered. He went to the temple that had replaced the tabernacle, which was a living prophecy of the Messiah that was to come. John's Gospel tells us, John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. As I told you a few weeks ago, that phrase translated, dwelt among us, literally reads, tabernacled among us. And that's because Jesus fulfilled everything the tabernacle pointed to. He is the sanctuary. He is the temple. And here's the amazing irony. In 586 B.C., Ezekiel saw the glory of God leave the temple, leave the holy city, and ascend to Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And at the triumphal entry, the one whom the scriptures describes in Hebrews 1.3 as the radiance of the glory of God, descended from Bethany, descended from the Mount of Olives, entered the east gate of the holy city, and returned to the temple. Do you get it? In 586 B.C., the glory of God left the temple, but with the triumphal entry, when Jesus comes back to the temple, the glory of God came back. The glory of God is seen in Jesus, and that's why John 1.14 ends with, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the last several years in the prayer at the beginning of each sermon, I've prayed the words of John 12, 21. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God promises that we will. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus brought the glory back to the temple so that we might see him. As 1 Corinthians 13 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. The triumphal entry leads to glory. It leads to seeing Jesus. That's what Palm Sunday is really all about. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Lord, help us be those who see Jesus. Help us be those who long for his glory, even in these dark and uncertain times, so that more and more your glory can come into our lives and transform us. Help us be the ones who follow the one who entered into his city on that first Palm Sunday so long ago. So, Lord, if there is anyone among us this day, anyone who watches this video, anyone who hears these words not trusting in Christ, we would ask uh, that by your Spirit you would draw that person to yourself, that you might let light shine out of darkness, to shine in their hearts, to give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.